But uh, let me pray as we spend time in his word today. Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Thank you that it is the corpus of wisdom from you, godly wisdom, uh, over against the world's ideas, philosophies, even the world's uh, self-proclaimed wisdom. Your wisdom transcends time, culture. Uh, it is eternal. And so as we look at this uh, interesting piece of literature, might it change our hearts and minds as we think about who you are and how we need to live as a result. In Christ's name, amen. Let me begin by reading some of uh, Dr. Bruce Waltke's introduction. He has a two-volume set. It's very academic. It's very critical. It's he, critical as a critical commentary. It deals with the Hebrew language in detail. Not, in other words, not a book I'd run out and buy. It's a two-volume set. But he, what he says in a, a few paragraphs uh, is helpful as we think about this book and how we approach it from a, a, a document, from the Scripture as a Scripture, and then how to interact with it. In a world bombarded by inane cliches, trivial catchwords, and godless sound bites. Sounds like social media, doesn't it? <laughs> right there. And this is 2004 he's writing this. Uh, the expression of true wisdom is in short supply today. The church stands alone as the receptacle and repository of the inspired traditions that carry a mandate for a holy life from ancient sages the greatest of whom was Solomon, and from whom the greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ. As the course and bulk of biblical wisdom, the book of Proverbs remains a model of curriculum for humanity to learn how to live under God and before mankind. As a result, it beckons the church to diligently study and, uh, to diligent study and application. To uncommitted youth, it serves as a stumbling stone and to committed youth, a foundation stone. Again, uncommitted youth, it serves as a stumbling stone to committed youth, a foundation stone. He did a little of his own Proverbs there. Of his 930 ancient sayings, many Christians know three, to fear the Lord, to trust Him, to train their children in the way they should go, and possibly something about a virtuous wife. However, to fear the Lord is misunderstood. To trust Him is a platitude divorced from the book. The promise that a child will not depart from childhood rearing raises more questions than solutions. I don't know how many parents over the years come in. It said if we did this, they'd go on the path, and they didn't. You know, sort of the way of the world. He continues, for the modern mind, the book's cultural setting seems far removed from the 21st century. Proverbs puts a high priority on tradition and age. The modern mind prizes change and youth. Proverbs admonishes parents not to spare the rod, but the state's welfare workers want to jail those who obey it. It's psychology and is psychosomatic. Modern psychology uses more scientific terms. He continues in English. A proverb expresses a universally accepted truism. But trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean upon your own understanding is not a truism that many Americans accept. Americans may claim to trust in God in their coinage, but in fact, they teach and preach, believe in yourself. I can't tell you the number of times over the years 
someone has said in a conversation, well, you have to be true to yourself. You have to be who you were made to be. You have to be who you are. You have to be true to your identity. This is how I'm made. And that stands in stark contrast to what we're reading. Perhaps one of the best ways to navigate our life and our time is to have God's wisdom from sublime to practical forefront in our minds, guarding our hearts. The ancient text is available to both young and old. Uh, most of us look forward to, to new things in life. We look forward to a new semester. Summer is around the corner for many of you. It's, it's about here. You're done with school. Maybe you're going to start summer school. Maybe you're going to start college in the fall. Maybe you're starting a new business or a new part of your business. Or maybe you're dating and a new relationship is in front of you. We tend to look forward to new things because it's a time for change, opportunity for change. And so when we change books of the Bible in a, a church setting, I like to think it's a time, it's a unique time to change. You need time to think about something differently than the way we have. Um, after high school, I've told my story at great length. That I didn't go to college right away. I worked for a while. But eventually I had three friends that um, beleaguered me into coming to college. And I only applied to one. I threw my possessions in the back of my truck. And off from Houston to Stephen F. Austin, Nacogdoches, Texas, I went to go to, to, to college. And um, we had to go to uh, orientation, which was a two-day affair. And they held them over the summer. I don't know if they still do this, but they held them over the summer. And they were required before you could go to register. And so I'm sitting in this thing. And uh, Dr. Clyde Iglinski, a name you won't forget, Iglinski comes out. He was a half comedian and half uh, counselor. Phenomenal man. And he made us uh, do one. Literally, he said, I want you to start counting yourself one and go one, two, three, four. And, of course, we didn't do it. And he goes, no, I want you to do it. I want to hear you say one, and then someone beside you, two, three, four. So we all kind of go one, two, three, four. He says, one of you won't be here by the end of the semester. He'd been doing this a long time. And then he went on to elaborate that uh, you'll miss your mother. You won't like your roommates. You won't like the food. Uh, you'll sleep and miss your classes. You'll start making bad grades. It'll be too hard. You might have been the smart kid or you grew up, but you're not anymore. You might have been the class clown and you're not anymore. You might have been a great athlete. You're not anymore. And it's a different time. And one in four of you won't be here. And I remember sitting there going, he probably knows what he's talking about. I don't want to be that person. And true to form at the end of that first semester, 25% of the incoming class had dropped out for various reasons. If I could sum up what Dr. Iglinski said, don't be a fool choose to be wise. Change brings challenges. Any change in life, whether you're single and married, going through a divorce, you're recovering from a divorce, whether you're buying a house, building a house, moving, you know, raising kids, raising teens, uh, giving your teenagers keys to drive a car, every opportunity we face, every single one of them is an opportunity to learn wisdom. And this book is uh, pervasive in helping you and me in very simple ways. Um, I want you to, as we start this series, ask God the question in the prayer, if you want to, I hope you would, to give you the wisdom to be a godly man or a godly woman. I think that's a prayer he'll honor. As we go through Proverbs, pray, God, give me the wisdom to be a godly man, to be a godly woman, to be the person that not only I want to be that you made me to be, to be a wise person. 
as we look at this book, it's, it's so many interesting ways to approach wisdom literature. Structure, vocabulary, organization. And when you read the book, it's almost, whether it's so simple to comprehend, but if you study it, it's inexhaustible in so many ways. And I think that's illustrative of the wisest man on the planet, second to Jesus Christ, who compiled this. I want to show you uh, these five purpose statements if you're into grammar and such, they're called an infinitive constructs in the text. But they're real easy to see when you read it. But you probably miss it, unless you're a Bible study nerd, you probably miss it the first time you've read it or the 15th time you've read it. And I want to show them to you. They're super easy to see. And you'll see it from now on. You'll never not see it. Uh, sometimes our Bibles, if you read a Bible that's in paragraph form, it just runs like a book. There's pros and cons to that. Sometimes Bible translators will structure books in a way so it's easier to read, especially when it comes to poetry. Um, and so sometimes your Bible may or may not help you is what I'm saying. But sometimes the structure will make these things stand out. But you watch as I read. It's the little English word to in Hebrew. It's a, a letter called Lamed. But it makes each of these phrases stand out as a statement. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understanding a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. So if we go back one slide, please. So you see, two, 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 two. I mean, it stands out, right? That's an infinitive construct. You'll never not see it. And going forward, this is one of many things you're going to start looking at when you read wisdom literature. It's different than reading a narrative or a story. We have this little explanation in verse 5. If we can go forward, please. A wise man will hear an increase in learning a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. So he's juxtaposing the same person two different ways. And we're going to look at who can obtain wisdom, how we obtain wisdom, and there's, there's different approaches to this whole topic. It's a big topic. And so these five purpose clauses could all be, I mean, you could do easily five sermons, ten sermons on just those five purpose clauses, which I'm going to resist temptation. What is wisdom? The word wisdom is hakma or hokma in Hebrew. And we've talked about fields of meaning before, right? I use a silly illustration about the peanut. And I say the peanut's in the trunk. What could that possibly mean? The trunk of an elephant, trunk of a tree, trunk of a car, etc. And then I keep giving you more information. I said the peanut is stuck in the trunk. Could still be all the above, right? If I say the zookeeper is trying to get the peanut unstuck, I haven't given you precisely the definition, but what I've narrowed the way the word is used so much that you're safe to say, oh, he's probably trying to get the peanut that's stuck in the elephant's trunk out. Make sense? How a word is used is how it gets its meaning. Usage determines meaning. So when we read wisdom and understanding and discernment, we have to take some time and say, how is the author using that language so we understand how we apply it what it means in our lives. Dr. Lewis Goldberg, who was a professor at Moody, a Jewish Hebrew scholar, writes, when you distill the verb forms and its derivatives, 
which occur some 312 times in the Hebrew Old Testament, about three-fifths of the usages are found in Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. We call Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes the wisdom literature. That's the cor corpus means body. We're talking about the body of literature in the Old Testament that deals with wisdom. Think about that. Job is a book about wisdom. Most of us think it's this terribly long, depressing story that has a happily ever after to it. No, it's about the wisdom of life being unjust and unfair and difficult and painful and hard. And how do you soldier through? With wisdom. And of course, Proverbs is the book of wisdom as well as Ecclesiastes. So we have this wide field of meaning. Let me give you three of the more common ways the word is used and how you probably naturally understand what it means when you read the word wisdom. Uh, in chapter uh, 7 of Kings, uh, 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 14, we get an explanation. The first way it's used is with a technical way, as in a skill or in warfare or craftsmanship. Interesting way it's used, a skill in war. Listen to 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, speaking of a man named Horam or Hiram in Hebrew, he's from Tyre. And he was brought in, a worker in bronze. He was filled with wisdom and with understanding and skill. All these words tie back to this wisdom literature for doing any work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and performed all his work. A side story about this guy, when, when David wants to build God a temple, a house, he says, no, your son will build it, and you get to build your own home. And so David becomes a stockpiler of materials so that Solomon, his son, will have what he needs to complete the temple complex. And there's no, there's no supply chain issues in those days, but he brings timber in from around, he brings gold, he brings bronze in, but the, the, the metal work was not familiar to the Jew. And so Hiram was the guy from Tyre that they brought in. We, don't, we read the Bible so quickly or casually, this guy was an artisan that would you know, he, he would eclipse Michelangelo probably. What this man could do with metals in antiquity is almost unheard of. You know what lost wax cast is? Uh, years ago when they used to make like class rings, they'd make it out of this kind of hard waxy substance. They'd design it and they'd put it in a, basically a, a box of sand and they'd pour the metal or the silver, or whatever, the gold or silver, whatever it was in that mold and it would displace the wax and the mold then would now be filled with gold or silver, and therefore you have lost wax casting. You've got the ring or the bracelet, but you no longer have the mold. That's what they did in antiquity. And only Hiram could do this stuff. And the stuff he did in ancient literature is like mind-blowing. No one had the skill. This guy was a brilliant artisan, a brilliant engineer. We say today he was a brilliant metal worker, a brilliant chemist. So the scripture describes him as a man of wisdom, understanding, not just some guy that knew how to, you know, frame a house. He was an artisan. He was brilliant. They're industrious in this work. It also is inseparable from hard work. Uh, Hiram did not become the skilled uh, metal worker uh, by sitting on the couch watching Netflix. This is something he spent his life doing. A second way wisdom is used that's common is 
in administration, governing, or leading. And this is probably the way most of us think about wisdom. I mean, what I do initially. Oh, I need someone who knows how to administer and lead things. Second Samuel chapter 20, verse 22, there's a delicious passage about a woman. And the story is uh, Joab and the Israelites have got this people group called the Beerites uh, pinned in, and they're going to kill them if they don't surrender one person. And let me just read the verse. Then the woman wisely came to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city. Each went to his tent. Joab also returned to the king at Jerusalem. Can you imagine one woman behind the city walls trying to convince, if we don't lop off this dude's head, we're all dead? Can you imagine a committee making that decision today in our culture? We're going to kill this person and toss his head, or let a whole army come in here and destroy us all. It's, it's irony and it's sad that it's a woman. He said, you got to cut off that guy's head. I'd love to have been in that conversation. It just seemed, you know, I'm, I'm weird that way. First um, Kings chapter 3, verse 28, the people react to Solomon. And the most famous story about Solomon's life, when the two harlots uh, have the babies and one's dead, and uh, you know the story, when all Israel heard the judgment which the king had handed down, that phrase is loaded. Uh, you remember when they come in, he says, he says, it's really one and a half words in Hebrew. Uh, English says, bring me a sword or get my sword or get the sword. In Hebrew, it's just get sword. It's very poignant, get sword. And they had these two women and this child. When Israel heard the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king. And they saw the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Wasn't a drop of bloodshed, but there was fear in the ranks. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love to, I, I hate to admit this, it's sort of disgusting to admit, but I do watch some of the highlights of the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. You may think less of me, I really don't care. Um, but it's, it's like watching sausage and a train wreck at the same time. It's just, it's a terrible, horrible thing, but I don't know why I watch the highlights. Nobody's going to win. It's horrible what they're talking about. It shouldn't be in television, but I'm watching anyway. Um, and I'm watching this judge who I'm quite impressed with. Not, I, I've you know, maybe watched 20 minutes. I have no idea what's really going on. But the, the pieces I've watched, I think, boy, wouldn't it be interesting if that was Solomon? How would he judge this? Because we all want a judge who's right and righteous and knows exactly how to execute judgment. And by the way, a sword always, if it's justice, it vindicates the, uh, accused, the, the, uh, the, the injured party and it punishes the guilty. That's what a two-edged sword does. It brings mercy to the one that was harmed and it punishes the guilty. Well, another way wisdom is used that is common in our thinking, again, these are just three of many, is that it keeps us from sin. Repeatedly in the literature, a person who's wise is going to avoid sin. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 is perhaps the most painful reminder in all the Bible of a person who did not make a wise choice. The woman saw the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise. That's the same word. She took from it fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. 
The fall of man was a lie, but they got wisdom. They learned what was good and evil. They learned that they were now sinners. And that fall, you know, in Adam's fall, we did all. Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall. All the king's horses, all the power of the king, all the king's men, resources, couldn't put Humpty back together again. In the search for a wisdom that was not of God, that's the beginning of the fall. So these are just three ways the word is used. It is of inestimable worth. You can't put a price on wisdom. And it would make sense if wisdom is of inestimable worth, what it cost us should be immaterial. Because it doesn't cost you any money. It does cost you time. Well, that's a super brief sur survey of how the word wisdom is used in Proverbs and wisdom literature. Let's think a little bit about how we get it. First, you have to recognize God is the source of wisdom. Uh, the wisdom literature is God-centered, not just man-centered. If you know anything about the ancient Near East, um, Israel is obviously affected by the Babylonians, by the Egyptians, by their cultures. And if you are a super geek and you study history, world history, there, there's a running discussion that most of the Proverbs were just Egyptian Proverbs that were hijacked and brought into uh, the book we call the Bible. And that's not too far wrong. That's not off. But the difference is a, a, a bit of wisdom, a stitch in time says nine, whatever. A, a proverbial statement is true whether it came from a Babylonian, a Cretan, or a Jew. The difference is when God inspires Solomon to, comply, to comprise this corpus of literature. So even if it was, quote, existing in the cultural, you know, idioms and expressions, doesn't make it less biblical. But that's a big discussion in scholarly circles because those are the kind of things they worry about. But being, having said that, God is the one who has wisdom. God is the source of wisdom, especially if we're talking about biblical wisdom. Wisdom requires a deliberate pursuit. You're not going to get it by sitting on the couch or surfing on your phone. You're, you have to pursue it, which is what makes the pursuit of wisdom and the study of Proverbs so interesting. Proverbs 9, 8 is one of my favorite chapters because uh, Solomon says, Wisdom calls. She's in, like at the rooftop saying, Here I am, come get me. Uh, by, by the way, let me spoil alert if you haven't seen the film. Wisdom is personified as a woman. She, she, she. The way in the path, we'll talk about this, is a big part of the book. The way of the wicked, the way of the righteous. Don't be seduced by the woman. Don't be sedu seduction. She'll pull you away. The harlot will woo you away. Uh, follow the wise woman. And then it's crowned with chapter 31, the woman of virtue, the woman of valor. So we have this picture Wisdom is personified as a she, so it's easy to explain. This is what she's like. Follow her. Don't follow the harlot's way. Follow wisdom's way. So Proverbs 31 is not about a perfect woman. Proverbs 31 is the, is the capstone on the whole piece of literature. This is what wisdom is like. It gets up early. It stays up late. Wisdom takes care of her family. Now, We'd all like to have married the Proverbs 31 woman. But most women don't want to be compared to Proverbs 31. They really dislike it. And there's ministries that even call themselves Proverbs 31. I don't mean to be unkind, but it's probably not the best title. Let's explain it a little bit. And 
if God was, you know, going to give us the virtuous woman, why would we have Proverbs 32? Or why amen? All women said amen. What's the, what's the, the, per, the virtuous husband look like, for goodness sakes? You know? uh, she's doing all the work. He's doing nothing. He's in his man cave, right? Well, this is where don't let the world teach you theology. Wisdom is personified. How do we take this corpus of information that God's the source and teach it in a simple way? You make it simple. Wisdom is like this. Don't go down to the seductress. Follow her. So the whole book is, is laid out in that way. And so 31, not to destroy your study of 31, and those are good virtues for any woman or any person for that matter. But the point is, it's not some penultimate, this is what a godly woman looks like. This is the capstone of what wisdom looks like. Now, again, there's definitions galore, and one that I'm working with, it's not the best, but I'm working with it, knowledge plus understanding when applied equals wisdom. Knowledge plus understanding when applied. And I mentioned in the first hour, I need someone who knows how to write math equations, write it properly. So I'll fix it in going forward. Uh, because you'd put knowledge and understanding in parentheses, and then you'd put applied to the side equals wisdom. And I'll let someone who knows algebra explain that to you. Anyway, my point simply is, you can have knowledge, and you can have understanding but unless you're able to apply them you're not wise make sense and we all know people like this two illustrations um brilliant professor also named bruce waltke in the 70s he was in dallas and he was as a lot of professors do they go on the weekend and preach to some church they do a saturday and sunday conference or whatever so he goes from dallas texas to houston and he speaks at this church this is long before cell phones, and he, he flies back home. He gets to the airport in Dallas, and he's waiting and waiting and waiting. His wife doesn't show up, so he goes to the payphone because that's how you did it in those days. He calls his wife. He knew her phone number in her head. He calls his wife and says, honey, where are you? What do you mean, Bruce? Well, I'm at the airport. Bruce, you drove to Houston. <laughs> True story. So he has to fly back to Houston, get his car, and drive home. You see, a brilliant professor cannot be always wise. So it's not just intelligence. Another parallel story, but equally funny and sad, was when I was a mechanic in college. I worked for the Ford uh, Motor Company, and uh, there was a man there named Rayburn Parrott. They called him Nub, and he was stocky dude. I mean, he was like a you know, pile of bricks, just strong, big, thick hands. We don't know how, I don't think he went to high school. No one ever really knew, and you didn't want to ask. And um, Rayburn was a brilliant mechanic, but he wouldn't help anybody or share his information with anybody. And as he got older, we called him Nub because the Ford Motor Company worked him to a nub. That's what they said. And if any guys, you go by tools. If you use a tool a long time, it wears out. That was the point. And so they called him Nub. So anyway, um, they, they dispatched me with him to work with him. So I would go out. We had a wrecker that would pull diesel trailers uh, when a diesel broke down. My favorite was, if you've ever been to a chicken farm, where they have chicken houses, 40,000 chickens in these houses. And these trucks come, and they drive through, and they, they feed them with these big feeders. And in this red East Texas clay, they'd fall over sometimes, the truck and trailer. So they would call, and there'd be, there'd be wreckers lined up, and if the police saw Rayburn, they'd wheel him ahead, even though we had the, the oldest, junkiest wrecker, because Rayburn knew what he was doing. 
And Rayburn could winch the earth if he had the right pulleys. And I was boy. He never knew my name. Boy. And so, uh, boy, take it over. He had these chocks he'd made and chains, and we'd strap them around trees, and we'd put them here. And we'd lift up a completely grain-full trailer truck. We'd lift it upright with this small one-and-a-half-ton one Ford truck with two wheels on the back. I mean, he could move the He was brilliant. He could fix a car, but he could do brakes. But he wouldn't help anybody do it. And I remember going out with him and asking him questions. He'd get mad. I said, well, Rayburn, what do you want me to do? You know, basically, get out of my way. Boy, that was what it was. But he retired, and it was a matter, I don't think it was weeks he died. Talk about a man with wisdom, but didn't have the ability to apply it or transfer it. And so all that he knew was gone with him. Knowledge Plus understanding when applied is what wisdom is. Let's see how Scripture also contrasts wisdom so we understand it. The Bible will talk about the wisdom versus a fool. So we've talked about this word, what it means, that we're in wisdom literature. We've talked about the fields of meaning, how we get it, we ask God as a source. But now we're given help, well, what's it really look like practically? Well, let's compare it to a fool. This is what it doesn't look like. So some of these are very vivid. By the way, when you study Proverbs, the simple person and the naive person are always ones who are able to learn. Simple and naive are not work used in a derogatory, negative way. It's the person that's able to learn versus the fool who won't learn or is unable to learn. The fool is dull. He is obstinate. The word occurs 50 times in your English Bible. It has nothing to do with capacity. It has everything to do with his choices. Uh, unwilling to search for or receive wisdom. When Cindy and I, uh, were, one of our kids was in rehab many, many years ago, and we were, met with this parental group, and um, we would share a little bit of our stories. You can't share too much, obviously, but one parent was talking about their son, and the son, he, he would sleep till 2 every day. And the parent said, well, I want you to get up and apply for at least two jobs every day online. That's all I want. That's the only requirement she had. Well, he never did it. And if you've been in these groups, you can't cross-talk. In other words, you can't make a comment about somebody else's. But I'm sitting there. Cindy's probably, you know, squeezing me with her fingernails. You don't make him get out of bed. You know, <laughs> no, He was a fool. He was a fool. And a hundred blows don't work with a fool. So the word fool is an apt description. It's not, it has nothing to do with capacity. It has to do with choices. It has to do with what do you want to do. Proverbs 18.2, a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. How many people give you their opinion and don't do anything? 23.9, do not speak in the hearing of a fool. He will despise the wisdom of your words. Tragically, he's unaware of his folly. Verse 15 of chapter 12, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to counsel. Don't name any names, but think of some politicians when they speak or tweet. Do they want wisdom? Do they want knowledge and sound counsel understanding? Or do they just want to speak their mind? Verse 10 of chapter 17, a rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. So back to the simple 
and the naive, they can learn, and they might even learn through pain. But a fool won't learn. A fool, it's not, it's not inability, it's they don't want to learn. And again, this is the contrast. The root of his trouble is spiritual, not intellectual. And then all the way back to chapter 1, verse 7, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Um, I, don't, I hope you don't have this in your family, but we've had it in ours at different times. You can't tell them anything. You can't tell them anything. Nothing you can say is going to change what they're doing. They have to learn the hard way. They may never learn. In the whole addiction language we talk about, well, they haven't hit bottom yet. Whatever that means. Bottom is hard for some people. And even then, some may never learn. So Proverbs paints a picture that is very, very easy to grasp. And one that, of course, this makes perfect sense. Why is it some people, why is their life so hard? The more important question is, will you and I be wise? I can't fix anybody else. Lord knows I'm, I'm pretty pathetic at fixing me, much less trying to fix somebody else. But I can hopefully grow and learn. Some lessons. Number one, we need a lifelong commitment to education and learning. And I'm not talking about going to college or whatever. I'm talking about Scripture. Um, a wise life will always bring blessing. A wise life will always bring joy. A wise life will protect. A wise life will always be beneficial. There's nothing else in this world that I can think of that if you ask God to give you wisdom to be a more godly man or woman, there's no downside to this equation. Period. It's just a deliberate choice to say, I'm going to learn the rest of my life. I'm going to get my nose in the book every morning. I'm going to spend a little time in this every day. The methodology of learning, I think, is rooted on God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people. If you're not in the right information, asking God's Spirit to help you and surrounded by God's people, you're going to have a very difficult time growing in any way, much less wisdom. I was heard from a gentleman this week, Wayne and I and some others were talking to, and he and his wife have two different Bible studies going, and to hear him effusively talk about Bible studies and discipling men, I, my mouth was hanging open. He was so excited about it. You know, when you're in a group of people and you're reading a text and somebody says something really goofy or really over the top, and you go, well, let's, let's read about that, you know? And you don't ever want to be in a small group with me. You really don't. So I love when someone says, let's read a verse. And then, what, what's this mean to you? I go, Stop. I don't care what it means to you. What's it mean? But what do we do? What's it mean to you? What I feel when I read this verse is, what I think when I read this verse is, I don't really care what you feel. What's it say? God's word, God's word, and God's people help me. I praise God that as a young college uh, believer in college, that there were other men in this church I was involved with that discipled me. They took me under their arm. We met weekly. We read through Knowing God by J.I. Packer. We read the Bible together. Um, all sorts of tools we went through. Uh, keeping step with the Spirit. And uh, these guys... Uh, they were patient with an impetuous, know-it-all jerk of a college kid. God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people. Third, the Proverbs offers each reader a reward 
And that's something that you won't find, I don't think, anywhere else. It promises you reward. The path is part of the process. And this is one of the things, I think we know this as we get older and more mature, but we need reminding. We're, we're, we're outcome-based people. What do I get? What's my raise? What's my job? You know, we, we want the outcome. The path and the process are more important than the outcome, frankly. My dad had a saying, the reward of work is not the end of work, but the work itself. And that was born out of the depression. The reward of work is not the end. It's not Friday. I can't wait for Friday. Boy, if you said that around my father, he'd say, boy, you're wishing your life away. You're wishing five days a week away for two days. The reward of work is not the end of work, but the work itself. That's proverbial wisdom. Wisdom in the scripture, the path is the progress, the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. You and I are faced with this every single day in a hundred ways. What choice are you going to make? Are you going to make a wise choice or a frivolous choice? A wise choice or a wicked choice? Proverbs 5, 1 verse 5, a wise man will hear and increase in learning and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. That's a promise. For many years, I traded personal goals with friends. I would write out a set of personal development goals, and I would trade it with a handful of friends. And we would, we would measure each other throughout the year. How are you doing on this and that and the other? And it was a wonderful exercise to do for many, many years. And I've told this story in great detail. But one man, Ned Amstotz, would, uh, one year he asked me, he goes, Michael, you're a, you're a pretty disciplined guy. You say you're going to read X books a year, and you do that. You know, you're, you have your devotions five times a week or six. You do that. You're good at that. Um, I want you to write a goal that only God could accomplish. That changed my setting goals for the rest of my life. Setting a goal that if it was accomplished, I could only point to God being the one who accomplished it in my life not because I was better or more disciplined or read a few more books or whatever I was working on. I took the, a little bit of the flesh out of it and said, okay, Lord, and I shared the non-anxious presence with you years, uh, months ago about not being anxious. And God answered that resoundingly. Uh, Proverbs 1.5 tells me, tells you, a wise man will hear, will, will hear and increase in learning. It's, you got to learn. And a man of understanding will acquire. Why I'll seek others for that counsel. Finally, ask God to give you the, His wisdom to change. This would be a good prayer this spring and summer. And the easiest way to do this is start. This is May first. You've all done it probably, or most of you have. Thirty-one chapters in the Book of Proverbs. You can read one chapter in Proverbs in under four minutes. Not saying you should in four, but you can. Read it in 10 minutes and take, there's two that pop out, write them on a post it, write them on a, a three by five, tape it on your mirror when you shave, put your makeup on, tape it on your steering column when you're in the parking, when you're at a stoplight. One proverb a day and read one chapter a day as we go through this. And I would, I can't say I'll bet, but I believe you'll change. God's Word, God's Spirit who indwells you in me, and God's people. Do we need a time to know how to wisely live in a culture that's 
lost its ever-loving mind? Do we need wisdom to navigate the issues that have pervaded the church, invaded the church in such bizarre ways? Do you need wisdom on how to raise your kids in this culture? Yeah, I do. I think you do as well. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you for the wisdom of Solomon and mostly for the wisdom of Jesus Christ, whom we will see in this book in all kinds of interesting ways. We thank you that we have this Bible so accessible in our pockets, on our phones, on our tablets, on our computers, and even in a book. And we can spend a few minutes each day learning from the wisest human who ever lived in simple, bite-sized ways how to be the man, the woman you want us to be. We ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen.